We're going to look this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, a fairly familiar passage of Scripture. It's sometimes challenging at Christmas season to teach from passages that aren't the basic story of Christmas. I think we've read virtually every traditional Christmas passage over the last four weeks of gathering, especially with our service last night. So this morning we're going to look at the journey of Jesus, as it is explained to me at least through the book of Philippians. And today, Christmas Day, is the most celebrated holiday in all of the world, virtually celebrated in every country this thing called Christmas. For some, it's a time to slow down, relax, spend some time with family. For others, it's a time to go and travel and be with family and friends that aren't seen very often. For others, it's a time to give and receive gifts as an expression of love and friendship and thankfulness. Well, then for kids, we all know what it's about for kids, right? It's all about the gifts. My memories as a kid are pretty centered around the mountain of gifts around a tree. Five boys in my family and two uncles who did a lot to help prepare and provide Christmas for us. So I came across some letters that were allegedly written to Santa some time ago, and here's what is expressed by some of these kids. It's, Dear Santa, I want a puppy. I want a playhouse. I've been good most of the time. Sometimes I'm wild. Still wants a lot from Santa on Christmas. Another one says, I'll take anything because I haven't been very good this year. <laughs> Another says, I'm not going to ask for a lot. Here's my list. The Etch-A-Sketch Animator, two packs of number two pencils, Crayola fat markers, and a big color TV that is all my own. Well, maybe you could drop the pencils. I don't want to be really selfish. And then lastly, this child who is a little bit more altruistic in their letter to Santa says, when you come to my house, there will be cookies for you, but if you're real hungry, you can go use our phone and order a pizza to go. So, so there you have it. Most people don't understand the meaning, the reason that we celebrate Christmas today. It is the incarnation of Christ. It is the visitation of God to earth through the baby Jesus. Now, in the previous section in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is teaching the church at Philippi what unity is supposed to be, how it is to be a goal of theirs. And then in the section we're looking at today, the most significant application of what Paul is going to tell the church at Philippi is he's going to use the example of Christ as an example to them as to how they are to live their lives so they can help be a part of God's provision for unity. So in our passage today, we're going to be looking at this, but I want to look at it more from the illustration that Paul gives and how in such simplistic terms he explains the miracle of the incarnation of Christ. So verse 5 is the beginning part of our section this morning, and it serves as a transition from the exhortation that he gives in verses 1 through 4 and the illustration that he's going to provide in verses 6 through 11. And here's what it says in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now that's the transition. And so what he's going to do is he's going to begin to expose the attitude of Christ and how we as his followers are to emulate that example in order to help 
bring about unity within the church. Again, I want to look at the example of Christ to deepen our understanding and our devotion to the one that we worship today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read together verses 6 through 11, and then I have a few points to make about that. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now from this passage, we're going to look at what I'm going to call the journey of Jesus, and we're going to look at this in four different movements. Number one, we're going to look at Jesus' journey from glory. We see this in the very first part of verse 6, although he existed in the form of God. So his journey from glory is a journey as God. Make no mistake about that. Jesus' journey began in eternity past from, from the Father's eternal plan of redemption. It was not a last second solution to a problem that God did not foresee. But Jesus, in the form of God from eternity past, came into the earth, came to the earth through the manger, and it is the reason we celebrate Christmas today. Before, during, and after his incarnation, he was, by his very nature, fully and eternally God. We look at the baby Jesus as a cute little baby and it brings back memories of our own children being born or perhaps even our grandchildren being born. But make no mistake about this. This is God in the flesh, in the form of a baby, the incarnation by God's predetermined plan, eternal as a part of the triune Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. Now the word form in verse 6 refers to the outward manifestation of an inner reality. So he has come to the earth as a baby, externally as a baby, but internally the outward manifestation of the reality that he has come as God. The idea is that before the incarnation, from all eternity past, Jesus pre-existed in the divine form of God, equal with God the Father in every way. Now there's some things that are obvious about the baby Jesus and the life that he lived. He lived a life of willful submission to the plans and purposes of the Father. And although he is the full manifestation of the fullness of God's deity, he sets that aside for the plans and purposes that God has for him. And we'll explore this a little bit later as we go through this. By his very nature and in his innate being, Jesus Christ is and always has been and will be forever fully divine. He journeys from glory as God. Secondly, he renounced his glory. Middle part of verse 6 says, did not regard equality with God a thing 
to be grasped. And so here Paul affirms the reality of what he's just said with the word form, form of God. Here he says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. So although he continued to fully exist as God during his incarnation, he refused to hold on to his divine rights and prerogatives. He renounced these prerogatives on his journey from glory to the cradle. He let go of his rightful glory, the glory he had experienced in eternity past. Now, we don't really have a firm grasp of what eternity is. We we are limited by time and space. We think about eternity future. We go, wow, that's going to be a really, really long time. But it really isn't time. It's just existence. And so Jesus existed in eternity past, a place that has no beginning, a place that has no end, always has been, always will be fully divine. His equality with God means the same thing as the form of God. So during His earthly ministry, Jesus never denied, nor did He ever minimize His deity. He simply renounced the rights and the privileges that were His as a divine being. He was clear in acknowledging His divine sonship and His oneness with the Father. For example, in John 10.30, He said... He says, I and the Father are one. Now, how do you understand that? How can you understand that? There's only a single way, and that is that Jesus and God are equally together, have been from eternity past, will be eternity future, yet Jesus renounced His glory from the Father, from eternity past, to come into this world that He has created. He never used His power or authority or authority for any personal advantage because for Jesus, the prerogatives of His divine nature were not a thing to be grasped. Now that word, that phrase to be grasped means to hold on to or to cling to the rights and the privileges that are His. He had all of these rights and privileges of God, which He could never lose, yet He refused to selfishly cling to His favored position as the divine Son of God. I don't know how we can fully understand what that means, and I'm always somewhat reticent to use analogies because eventually you take them out to a point where you don't want them to end and you say, well, that's not really what I meant by that. But here's what kind of came to my mind as a way for us to, in very simplistic terms, imagine some of what this means. Imagine being the owner or the founder or the creator of a massive corporation, something like Apple or Google or Amazon. You employ thousands of people. And as the owner, the founder, the creator of this business, you would possess all the rights and all the power and all the privileges that are imaginable in that position. And one day you decide you're going to renounce all of those privileges. You're going to set them aside. You're going to take upon yourself the most menial, the most unassuming, the lowest wrong position in the company. All the while, you are still the rightful owner, but you are choosing to renounce those rights and privileges that are yours. Can you imagine doing such a thing? How do you like being demoted? 
Have you ever been called into the office and your employer, your boss says, well, we really appreciate you being here, but I got some bad news for you. We're going to change your job description. You're no longer going to be the executive vice president. You're going to be the peon beneath all the other people, the executive vice president oversees. He said, well, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. What have I done to deserve such a thing? We as humans don't like to be demoted, and it's incredibly rare for any human to willingly demote themselves and set aside their rights and privileges. And yet, this is a very human way of explaining what, in fact, Jesus has done. Fully divine, equal with God, all the rights and privileges, and He chooses to set them aside for the plans and the purposes that God has for Him yet all the while still being fully divine. He left His place in glory as God. He let go of His rights and His power and His position. And He journeyed from glory to the cradle. You know, He didn't journey from this place of glory to the throne of David. He didn't journey and suddenly become the king of Israel who was going to restore them back to their former place in the world. He came as a baby. Verse 7 says at the very beginning, 7a, He emptied Himself. He lowered Himself from this former place of glory to the cradle. Although He was equal to God and full of deity, He emptied Himself with all of His prerogatives and came to the earth in the form of a baby. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul would write, no, I didn't make it in there, I'm sorry, Paul would write to the church of Corinth, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you through His poverty might become rich. Jesus laid it all aside, His rightful place of glory, and journeyed to the cradle. He was not forced to do so. He did not resist the plan, but He willingly humbled Himself because His rights and privileges were not a thing to be grasped. Every trace of advantage, every trace of privilege, He refused to assert any divine right on His own behalf. Think about that. He refused every divine right for His own behalf. He, he, excuse me, he who created and owned everything forsook it all and came to the earth He created in the cradle. He did not empty Himself of His deity, only of the prerogatives and the privileges that His deity afforded Him. So he emptied himself and came into this physical world as a servant. 7b says, taking the form of a bondservant. He let go of his rights as the Lord of all, and he took upon himself the form of a bondservant. He owned no land. He didn't own a house. He didn't own any gold or any jewels. He owned no business. He had no boat. He had no horse. He was like a fox who had no place to lay his head. He borrowed a donkey when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He borrowed a room for the Last Supper. He was even buried in a borrowed tomb. He let go of everything and came into this world 
in the form of a baby in the cradle. He refused any property, any advantages, any special services to himself. Think of this. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords willingly let go of his glory and became the bondservant of bondservants. You and I are supposed to be bondservants of Christ. We are to commit and submit our lives to His Lordship in such a way that He rules over all, that there is none other before Him. And Jesus became the bondservant of bondservants by relinquishing His rights and journeying from His position of glory to the earth He created in a cradle. Number three, He came as a man. Last part of verse 7 says, And being made in the likeness of men. Being made in the likeness of men, He came into the world, He created as a baby, born to a virgin in a stable in Bethlehem, fully God, and also fully man. Created in the likeness of men. He had all the attributes of men. He would learn to talk. He would learn to walk. He would go through adolescence. He would work a job. He would get hungry. He would get tired. He would get thirsty. He would need to rest. His birth should have been celebrated with great fanfare, but instead he was born in obscurity to a teenage couple in a stable in Bethlehem without hardly anybody noticing apart from those the angel went and told of what had happened. And he did all of this to fulfill the Father's master plan of redemption. He entered into the world just like any other human, fully God, but also being made in the likeness of men. He journeyed from glory to the cradle, number three in our outline, to the cross. Verse 8 says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to die. I wonder what our response would be if every image of the baby Jesus in a manger included the crown of thorns that he wore for you and I. It'd be a bit of a shock, wouldn't it? It would be unsettling. It might even be disturbing. Yet the reality is Jesus came to die. Nowhere was the full extent of His emptying Himself or of His complete humility found other than the day, the last day of His earthly life. Nowhere could you see his emptying of himself more clearly than on the last day of his earthly life. Agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing what awaited him. Having been betrayed by one who followed him through all of his earthly ministry. Having been denied by the one who was the most vocal supporter. Being abandoned and left alone after his arrest as his followers were scattered. In the most dramatic and poignant time of Jesus' humiliation came at His arrest, His trial, and His crucifixion. He was mocked, falsely accused, spat upon, beaten with fists, flogged with a whip within an inch of His life. Yet He was never defensive. He was never angry. He was never bitter. 
He was never demanding. He was never accusing. He never asserted His divine rights and privileges. As a bondservant of the Father's plan, as the agent of redemption and reconciliation, He knew He came into the world for a singular purpose, to obey the plan of the Father, which was to go to the cross. Death was not forced upon Him. He willingly left His rightful place in glory, humbled Himself, letting go of all of His rights and privileges as a bondservant. He journeyed to the cross to complete the Father's plan. He would say this in John 10.18, No one has taken it, my life, away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. The final part of Jesus' journey is the one that takes Him back to where He belongs. He journeys back, excuse me, He journeys back to this place of exaltation. Verses 9-11, through 11, and I'm going to summarize this. We could spend 30 minutes on these verses, but we're not going to do that. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the obedience of Christ in fulfilling the plan of redemption as explained in verses 6 through 8 is what brings to him this honored place of exaltation. Without the incarnation, think of this, without the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity is unknown and uncelebrated. How do we know the second person of the Trinity apart from the incarnation? We don't. And so he goes back to his rightful place of exaltation. This exaltation is found in his resurrection, in his ascension back into heaven, his coronation where he sits at the right hand of the Father, his elevation to possessing the name that is above every name. He is the one to whom all rule and all authority and all power has been given to. He is the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess of his rightful position as Lord. Now, not everybody is going to do so in right relationship with Him. They will bend the knee and they will utter the words and He will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the rightful position of the second person of the Trinity. All that Jesus has been in eternity past was during His life on the earth and will be in eternity future, will one day be fully realized by all. We know something about who He is. We know something about what He's done. But it's cloudy to us because of the presence of sin, because of the power of sin that still clings to us. And yet one day, the position of Christ will be fully realized and fully experienced and we will bow before Him, I would imagine, weeping and gratitude that He has enabled us to know the truth of who He is and allowing us to call Him Lord and acknowledging God the Father as our very own. You and I have this unique privilege of bowing our knees today and acknowledging His rightful position as Lord, even though it isn't yet fully realized. 
Jesus journeyed from his position of glory in eternity past. He came into the world as a baby for the purpose of going to the cross. And in doing so, he completed the Father's plan of redemption and has ascended back to his rightful place of glory where he rules and reigns on high. And what does God's people say to such amazing truth? You know, we look at this nativity scene, this picture. And for some of us, it's kind of lost the zing. We've seen it for years and decades. But thinking about what this means, this little angel appeared to these two individuals to tell them that they are going to be the parents of one who is going to be great. And that angel appeared to the shepherds and they came to see this thing. And a bright star appeared to these men from the east who came to worship this king and to give to him gifts that were deserving of such a noteworthy person and position. This scene is under attack. This scene is hated by the world because they don't know Him. And Jesus said, the world is going to hate you because they hated me first. And what you and I ought to do is look look at this picture and say, nothing is impossible with God. And if He was able to save a wretch like me, certainly He can save other wretches out there that I know that perhaps we think are beyond His reach. As much as this scene and this incarnation is a celebration of our relationship with Him, it ought to be a reminder that the mission isn't done. The work is not yet complete. And until He comes to assume His rightful position, you and I are to be faithful to carry out the message. And although we're not going to sing, go tell it on the mountain, we ought to go and tell it on the mountain that Jesus Christ is King, right? Or it is Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, how we thank you for this great gift that we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation of the one and only Son of God. Fully divine. Fully human. Leaving His rightful place in glory to go to the cross. To die in our place. To secure our salvation. And having completed this plan, ascending back into the heavenlies where He belongs. And through an incredible mystery, through an incredibly impossible gift, we will one day be with Him where He now is for a time without any end. Father, how we thank You for this gift You've given to us through Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing to Him.